This is a HeadGum Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to this Black Girl Nerds Podcast Extra of American Gods. This is the American Gods Podcast. The new series premieres on Stars on April 30th. And in this episode, we've got it all. Our interview first starts with Kendall over at South by Southwest. She interviews Orlando Jones, Jonathan Tucker, and Pablo Schreiber. In her second interview, she has a discussion with showrunners Brian Fuller and Michael Green. And in her last interview, it's with lead star Ricky Whittle. And then we head on over to New York where we interview actors Emily Browning, Yuti Badaki, Kristen Chenoweth, and the author of American Gods, Neil Gaiman. In that roundtable features Black Girl Nerds contributor Valerie. So for you American Gods fans out there, for you Neil Gaiman fans out there, or if you're just a fan of great fantasy fiction novels and stories, this is definitely the show for you. Again, check out Stars on April 30th. The TV series American Gods will make its debut. We're excited about it. We'll be live tweeting it under the American Gods hashtag. And we thank you in advance for tuning into this episode of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. It's a BGM podcast extra, American Gods, featuring our hosts, Kendall and Valerie. Enjoy. Orlando Jones, Jonathan Tucker, and Pablo Schreiber. Congratulations on the wonderful premiere. Um, I thought it was really, really intense, which is a good thing because I like intensity. Um, so I want to know, how are you feeling? Well, I always felt very temporary about myself, uh, and now I feel very empowered. It looked very well received. It's amazing. I'm you know, a huge fan of this world and these actors, so for me, it's like awesome with all the sauce. With some really hot sauce. Like some habaneros, maybe a couple of jalapenos, but it's it's awesome. Yeah. All the sauce. I don't do well with spicy food, so I feel a little differently. But, but not any less enthusiastic. No, I hear you. Know, a lot. The big change for me was watching it with an audience, you know, because I've seen it before, but I watched it on a laptop at home. So seeing the Dolby sound obviously was huge with the all with all of that and seeing it with an audience and having you know feeling people react to it um, it just feels great I, like I was saying to these guys earlier the, the scale and the scope of it and how every single time somebody new comes on screen it's like you get to take another little journey with somebody and everybody to a person is so fantastic in it I just feel so proud to be part of it really awesome so, awesome yeah, yeah I think you can really tell if a show succeeds whether it uh holds up on a big screen or not. Mm-hmm. You put a TV show on a film screen uh, with the whole audience, and if it works there, then you, you, you feel pretty good that it's going to work mm-hmm. in the medium in which you're, it's supposed to be. Yeah. It's traditional. Uh, I don't know. I feel like very entrusted with this character because the book is so well-received and people you know, care so much about this story and doing it justice. I think you always feel that way as an actor, but when there's underlying intellectual property that has such a 
characters. Warm reception, you really you feel that onus to do justice to that character. Yeah, this was my first time seeing a world premiere of a TV show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've done film premieres before, but this was the first time, so I'm happy that I got a chance to experience that with all of you. Uh, so personally, I like not-so-good characters. I like ambiguity. I like sketchy characters. I like antagonists. I like villains. So they're fun. Oh, that's why they gave us to you. So, I just want to know, how fun was it to play your characters? And I guess, what what was the best part about playing the characters that you got to play? So good. I mean, you know, for me, I've, the past couple of years, I've, I've played a lot of sort of not-so-nice guys or villains or whatever. Very well. But, but the particular joy of this one is that he's a guy who's... Who, from the very beginning of the setup of this story, he loses his luck, you know. So, point getting to play a, a leprechaun who's lost his luck it was like just kind of one of the funnest things I've ever gotten to do. A know? tall leprechaun. A tall leprechaun who lost his luck. So, you basically have a guy who's, who's down on his luck, chasing chasing that thing to try to get his mojo back, you know. And so, just a lot of so many circumstances that go forward in the season with Laura are just so so much fun to play and such a joy. Loki is such a character. I mean, what's fun is, I guess, we could all say the same thing. You know, that these are very big steps away from who we are in real life. And that's just fun, you know, because it gives you this license. It's not just the license of being in a world where there's no natural order because we're playing gods. That's, like, the first liberating thing. But it's not just that. It's that you get to step into a character. That's, and that gives you an ability to go further in different directions than you would in your, in your ordinary life. I really enjoy that. Yeah. And I'll say you weren't on screen that long, but you made a very big impression. Let's hope so. <laughs> come out there swinging, and there'll be more. There'll be more to come. come out there swinging. Subsequent season, but that you know, it's, even that, it's like it's still. I'm an actor. You know, it's fun to to find and create and build something that's uh, as far outside of your strike zone as you can get. You know, because we all can play ourselves pretty well. Yes. Um, so when you start kind of expanding your strike zone, even if it's only a few scenes, it's so fun. You know, mm-hmm. if I were doing this and not digging trenches. <laughs> Not that he wouldn't. I would. I would. Get, <laughs> this guy digs. I feel close. Uh, mean, like I do dig. I dig a meat trench. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. He Gucci with the trench. <laughs> he mad Gucci. Yeah. He just looks out of his car now. <laughs> I've always wanted to be a brown spider. Um, <laughs> a lot of people say I should be a black spider. You know what I'm saying? But I, I thought, no, nah, I want to be brown and brown and colorful. Yeah, you know what I want. And um, you know, it's hard when you're a brown spider because people don't know the pain you've been through as a spider. People trying to step relate. on you all the time. You spend a wave. Jackasses come by, just tear it's it down. Stuck. Take you your home. You feel yeah. my pain out there. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, this particular spider, I think, uh, and the most fun thing about the character is he vehemently believes that anger gets shit done. That anger, anger has a way of creating change that intellect doesn't come with and that element of Mr. Nancy in particular coming from the uh, African diaspora is one where you have somebody who is fed up he's not particularly interested in negotiation he's interested in action and it's fun to play that type of character because historically what tends to happen with those type of roles is it's always the green mile where the guy's like take my hand both i'm trying to save you both and this guy's like no burn all this shit to the ground and uh, we'll kill all these dudes let's get it so that's somewhere on the other side of matt turner in a fantasy world and though he is uh, powerful and tricky i do think that uh 
the compassion he should have. I'm not sure he has. Fun to play somebody like that. It's <laughs> just really fun. <laughs> so you said um, in the Q and A today that Mr. Nancy is a spinner of narratives. Yes, he which is. He definitely is. Yes, he um, is. But I want to ask all of you um, everything that is going on in this country today. What is the narrative that you think the show is trying to tell? Mm-hmm. I definitely wouldn't be so presumptuous as to say. What narrative the story is trying to tell. I would say that the show and to that point the novel, because using source material, is trying to present you with uh, and show you how complicated and how complex this country is and how many different sorts of people live here and were responsible for creating it. And so to minimize those contributions is not okay for any particular and everyone's entitled to their narrative i mean people people act like that you're not entitled to that belief like you 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 somehow owe them you must agree with them if you don't agree with them oh yeah kill that person like what are we gonna do i'll live i mean we we make these really wild jumps and assumptions and the, the truth of the matter is is that we are entitled to those beliefs but the question is how do we all still live together how do we still all build a society where everyone has the same opportunities as best we possibly can I, mean, I realize it's a bit of a pipe dream and there's always going to be an upper class and a lower class but the basic rights of being able to you know be free and have your own thoughts I mean if we can just get that part down where it's not completely exploitative I think uh this show seeks to, to, to lay down a, a, a conversation starter, but it doesn't seek to tell you what conversation you should be having. And that's what's powerful about it. It's, it's not dictating. It's, it's trying to uplift. The show addresses this idea that everybody um, has something to offer. Um, you know, and it's not just that, like, when you look at that casting up there, every single person steps up to this extraordinary level. So whenever they're on the screen, you're excited to see what they're going to do. No idea what Mr. Nancy's going to do when he's played by Orlando Jones. So you have no idea where Atween's going to be or what choice he's going to make when Pablo Schreiber is in that scene. They're, they're, you're always, you're always, uh, they always keep things so fresh, right? So they're, they're, They've got every all, all the actresses have been offered, but then right down to like the wardrobe designer, the production design, the, the, just the just the extraordinary level of like talent that everybody on this crew is watching this thing. Just look at the setups. I mean, how many actual setups are in these scenes? Sometimes, sometimes it's like four or five times more than you'll see like in a feature film. I mean, it's like real talented expert people and everybody has something to offer and I think everybody brought it um, for this show. I would agree with that. I think um, I watched the premiere, I was really impressed. I'm a big Neil Gaming fan, fan of the book. Haven't read it 200 times like that other Ain't nobody read it 200 times. I can't. There's not enough time in your life to read it Ain't nobody read it 200 times. I call bullshit on that. And maybe you got four or five. Stop lying. <laughs> but, um, but I want to ask you all, how are you liking Texas? How's Austin treating you? How's Texas treating you? I came in last night, so I haven't had a ton of time. Some people. Oh, man. I really uh, I'll tell you this. Chains, I'll tell you this. You got some. Yesterday, yeah, I, I shot the text chains on that street. Mm-hmm. 2002. Oh, was that? That was 2002? Yes, ma'am. Oh. Um, and I've been back here a number of times. I come, I've come to Texas at least four, four or five times a year. I love Austin. Uh, I love Austin. But I also fall in love with Dallas and San Antonio and, and Houston. Yeah, I really enjoy it. I was just in Houston for the Super Bowl. Or in Dallas for the Super Bowl. Dallas for the Super Bowl. But, um, you know, I, I do think that there's a 
if this town runs out of whiskey, they have one person to uh, yell at, and that would be me, because I certainly have taken down a few casks here in Austin, Texas, and I'm, st- I'm ready to go further this evening. Pablo, Pablo and I are fine. 5.15. Oh, you're whiskey being real like that? Oh, yes, you're a whiskey. Yeah, I'm a whiskey. Okay. Whiskey bourbon. All right. Nice. I love Jameson. Listen, I'm going to pay for all of you. I'm just saying. Uh, room okay. service. Okay. <laughs> Whatever I need to do, just tell me what to do. Just yeah, right. smart she just did, bro. Go get a Jameson. <laughs> Come on, take a hint. No, my birthday's in July. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Just hold on one minute. Is it, with, is it with a G, though? Is it, I just don't. Is it a G or is it a J? I don't J. know. Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, I guess I'd like to ask. Since we are black girl nerds, huh? black girl nerds, what is your biggest geek moment? What do you nerd out over the most? No, oh, you ain't got time. <laughs> watch, out, watch out with this one. <laughs> what do I nerd out over the most? Um, right now, I'm, I'm nerding out over the fact that there's like different storytellers in the marketplace than have previously been there. So you're actually getting to see stories like you just don't normally see. I mean, and I, I point at the tall leprechaun as one of those very examples of just uh, there's so many things that are not within the box of the things that you know previously we were seeing really on television or even in film. You know, film largely has been um, you know sequels and recycles of existing franchises that people know, and television has largely been procedurals. Really, you know, should have saved this person every week or you know catch this murderer every week. So. I'm really geeked out on what's available right now and, and the kind of characters that are out there for people to see. And and they're mean. Like, they don't have to be, like, all sweet, like, finally. Because one of the things I hate about characters that are often men or even men of color, it's like, we either play the sweetest, like, the dude with the heart of gold or the bad guy crackhead. Like, like we're never in love, particularly. <laughs> doesn't really happen. That that's a really interesting world that suddenly these characters that are suddenly coming to life and it's uh, I'm geeked out about that because it's so widespread right now between Man in the High Castle to Legion I mean it's, it's a lot going on TV is exploding right now and to do a show that's kind of breaking through all that is a little uh, surprising but also uh, you know I feel grateful to be working with these jackasses that's all my geek and can't have no more that's it I'm embarrassing myself further <laughs> What about you? Uh, I think I probably geek out most on sports, unfortunately. It's kind of boring. But no? What's your game? Well, basketball. Oh, okay. You should have said that from the jump. Favorite team? team? <laughs> uh, I'm Dallas Mavericks. Yay! Uh, it's crazy. You're a Mavericks fan? Yeah. That's yeah, dope. That's crazy. Here in town? Oh, really? Yes, you um, We've had some Twitter exchanges. Yeah. I keep saying you should have up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Mavs. I, you know, I saw in uh, his rookie season, I saw this tall, lanky German guy grab a rebound on one side of the court, drew a full court, and dunk on somebody. And it was like, you, I like you. So I saw Dirk through his whole, like, I've just been such a fan of his. And all those guys, Michael Finley, you know, from back in the day. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, the squads, I just loved all those guys. So I think he got on sports. Yeah, okay. Perfect. Uh, yeah, mixed martial arts and monetary policy. 
Before, otherwise, you just have to pull one out of a hat. That's it. No, it's pulling out of a hat time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Any mythological Like me personally, God. I like yeah. Athena. Okay. Goddess but beauty. for why? <laughs> what? Go deeper into that. Just well, to give us some yeah. ammunition. Well, I like, I like Athena because she was a warrior goddess. Um, and she pretty much... When it came to when it came to war and things like that, men had to come to her. She kill a motherfucker. I'm all about Dionysus. So Bacchus and Dionysus. Yeah, beautiful women, good food, great food. Yeah, I want you know I want to purge and I feel bad. That's the that's the guy. That's the guy of tonight for sure. That's the tonight. We're going Bacchus. Dio, Dio. I left the conversation for a minute. We can what make it up in here. I like it so much. Or Poseidon, you know, the trident, the ocean, you hold, you, you, you yeah, hold the large part, of the, the largest element in the earth. That's true. Yeah, we got to protect the coral reefs. Papa's a big coral reef protector. Huge, huge, huge. huge. You don't know that about me? You've yeah. never read that in the media about Mr. me? Coral. Some people believe it's not true, it but is true. it is true. The coral king. I'm the coral king. Yeah. Coral king. <laughs> come on, come on, come on, mess with this coral if you want to. Yeah, that's going to work out. Bad jokes. I'm going to make shit up. Like, you know, I got to say, Papa's great. Great actor, good dude. Um, he loves coral, man. He's all about it. Thank you all so much. I appreciate it. No, I appreciate it. Brian Fuller and Michael Green. So coming off of the premiere, how are you feeling? What did you think the vibe was in in the theater? It was hard to, to determine the vibe in the theater. I was just enjoying seeing it on a big screen with a powerful sound system and that was surreal could you tell us how the vibe was because i i was not conscious of it, <laughs> it seemed to test very well among cast members of american gods yes <laughs> the self-selecting group. there were a lot of gas a lot of shock moments and i think i know for the people that i was around overall just overall great impression like just very impressed with the visuals oh, good. with the quality of acting the music music's great it's Brian Reitzel music is great yeah talk to me about that how I mean I know nothing about how you get that into the show and what type of things you do to set the Effort. mood but it was so I mean the music was on point I'll say oh, that good, it good, was good, very good. on point that's really good uh, Brian Reitzel did the music for Hannibal and has collaborated with David Slade many times before. So when we sat down to talk about who we wanted to be our our voice of this series, his name was the first and only one that we really discussed, and it was only a matter of getting him in a room with Michael, who hadn't worked with him before, to to get on board. And, and I instantly realized he's someone who, every time I would talk to him, I would learn something new about his field, and that has borne out. Uh, most television shows, you, you have a composer, you talk about things, they write something, 
you put it in, you might change things a little bit. This also just became a very meticulous process. His compositions are so rich and so dense. Uh, and psychological. Mm-hmm. And then we would go in and shape it into these moments. Uh, so it's just like every other aspect of the show, music was something that every moment was pondered over. And we were lucky to have Brian Reitzel really defining these moments. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's something I do pay attention to. I pay attention to the music in shows. I buy I buy a lot of soundtracks and scores and and all of that. So uh, just Brian Fuller is one of those encyclopedic uh, minds of film scores. We will be in an editing room and looking at a scene and not sure exactly what direction will go, and then Brian will start fucking around on his phone and uh, not checking his email, but rather then we'll come up with a film score or a television score and play it to the scene and then go, nope, not that, and then pull up the next one and then we'll find the voice for it so that we just have our tuning fork Mm -hmm. for what makes the scene feel like the scene we imagined. And then Brian Reitzel will completely ignore all attempts (laughs) for and just react and come up with something that's so much better than we ever anticipated. Sometimes as editors in the editing room, our job is just to get the scene to the point where Brian Reitzel can make it sing. Right. And I do the same thing. Like when I'm when I'm writing, I think about the type of mood that I want and mm-hmm. find a, a song that goes with that. But I you can't have words to it because then I get exactly. distracted. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, I, when I wrote Pushing Daisies, I listened to the Adams Family Values soundtrack on the loop. And then was lucky enough to get the director of Assembly Values to direct the pilot of that. So it was uh, film scores are so vital, and uh, I'm fanatical about them. Awesome. So how is Texas treating you? How are you liking Austin? Short trip so far. Yeah. So far, so good. Always yeah. love Austin. Is this Always your home Austin. base? No, actually, um, I'm from Dallas, um, but I'm in Houston. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, I've I've had a lot of family in Texas. It's always great to visit. Mm -hmm. Austin's just fun. It's just, it just makes me too fat, though. (laughs) Lots of tacos. Lots of tacos. There's there's this thing called queso that they think is okay to eat. It's just, it's not okay. It's a staple. Gotta have the queso, chips and queso. (laughs) I don't know how you guys move. (laughs) So, you know, we are black girl nerds. Yeah, yeah. So... What is like the one thing, or it doesn't have to be one, but the thing that you nerd out to know the most, like the biggest geek moment or fandom? <laughs> I have not been more excited. So this excited. It's the return of Samurai Jack in March 11th. Uh, I believe it's on at mid- 11 or midnight. Uh, I'm going to be there early. That is um, Samurai Jack's return is something I'm literally giddy over. And uh, I, I've been in a room with Yanni Tartakovsky, who created that, and I wasn't able to speak, so I've never met him, and I still regret it. So I think, Brian, what do you fangirl? I fangirl over a lot. Uh, I fangirl over Harry Potter. I fangirl over Star Wars. I fangirl over Star Trek. I fangirl over Bob's Burgers, Game of Thrones. So... <laughs> There's a, a lot that I'm obsessed with just as a fan of the genre. Mm-hmm. Where do you pull, where did you all pull um, inspiration outside of just New Game Book? Were there any other outside inspiration that you used to create the show, to write it? Of course. I mean, we look at visual references. Yeah. Kubrick, David Lynch. Sean Brothers, Monty Python. Yeah. There's a lot of DNA in this, and you know, 
every artist is just a product of everything that came before them that they've watched and digested and kind of shat out their own version of. So mm-hmm. uh, we are we are no less guilty of that than, <coughs> than anyone else. Yeah. Um, so in the Q and A, you all spoke about representation, yeah. just about having expanding the roles of the women. Yeah. In the show, and I think that's really going to speak to our audience in particular. So, what can you tell me about how you see the role that women play in science fiction and fantasy, and what that's like, how far it's come? Or, well, there was there was a mistaken apprehension for a long time that sci-fi and fantasy were not things that were enjoyed by women, mm-hmm. and they were wrong for a very long period of time about it. I don't know why they were, but then suddenly people start to realize that women uh, read way more than men, and women read sci-fi. And so it is a very good time that that's being acknowledged and that things are being written specifically for women. For us, for this, it was just we knew that the story started with two men on a road trip, but there were other women met and participating along the way. And we wanted to learn more about it. We wanted to give them more screen time. And a television show has the potential for far more real estate. It allowed us to expand them out. And we, we, we met them and we wanted to get to know them much better. As a, a gay man, I grew up with all of these strong female role models. I didn't identify with the men I was seeing on screen. I identified with Princess Leia and Wonder Woman, the Bionic Woman, and Barbarella. Those were the the heroes of the stories. And I, as a kid, after watching Star Wars, my first Star Wars figure was R2-D2 because I wanted to be on Princess Leia's side and do what it took to help her without wanting to fuck her. For me, science fiction and fantasy and horror are female genres, and Ripley and Alien is an iconic hero. So I've always been approaching genre storytelling with a female perspective because those were the characters that resonated with me the most. And I'm always shocked by basic misogyny because... I just fundamentally don't understand it. I completely agree with you. <laughs> completely. Do you have a favorite character on the show? That's a tough one. It's, <laughs> it, you're throwing it to me. Like, <laughs> uh, I mean, right now, it's the show itself is a character that I'm kind of in love with, and it has its own personality, and spending time in its company is a unique experience. So... It's, it's still such a freshly born baby uh, that it's hard to take any particular part of it and say that that's uh, shining brighter. Um, yeah, it's need American gods right now. Yeah. There, you know, Laura Moon and Bilquis, the characters that we perhaps expanded the most from the book selfishly are ones that, that resonate with us very strongly because... There's, there was opportunity to fill in blanks that Neil didn't have the real estate to utilize when he was writing the book because he was telling Shadow and Wednesday's story. So for us, I think the first thing that got us jazzed was talking about expanding Vilquis and Laura and what were their what would their greater roles be in this story. And that led us to things like our, our last episode. We have a scene that I love where Media and Easter have a conversation and it, it takes a certain level of expansion to get them to that place and they have a relationship and they have conflict uh, giving them that platform for that to have a chance to just 
talk out their disappointments with one another and their different perspectives coming into it. That scene with Bill Clinton and Khmer, great. How long did that take? It, it was a very complicated visual effects process, but it, uh, like all of the, the elaborate sequences on the show, they were a combination of pre-production, production, and post-navigation, and all of those those voices singing in one harmony. So it was, uh, it was complicated, and it was something that we were very worried about because it's so iconic in the book, and if we didn't pull it off, we were big assholes. Right. Well, describe American Gods in three words. On your television. <laughs> On your knees. <laughs> nice. Good. Well, thank you all so much for talking thank about Black so Girl much. Nerds. Thank you. Well, and how do you feel it. as a Black Girl Nerd seeing Bill Quist as a main character? And do how do you feel? It's very empowering because I think seeing... That, that, that's something that's never really been seen on screen before, like to, in fantasy on this level. And I think that it kind of, in my head when I was watching it, I was thinking of kind of like the Hamilton right. effect, mm-hmm. kind of how I'm, I think that there's such a brilliance to it. And I know that you all didn't plan it, but at the time that this is premiering and, you know, the climate and everything, I think that it just really speaks to um, a sense of empowering our community and showing and not just black women but black men and just all people of color in science fiction and fantasy because like you said earlier that's like the common misconception that we don't read it we don't read comics we don't watch anime we don't and that's That's completely not true it's the strangest misconception yeah it is and I think what you all are doing is helping to break that mold and to shatter that misconception um, so I was really impressed, and I'm even more excited to see, you know, what else is happening. I've read the book. I'm a big fan of Neil Gaiman. Um, so when I heard that you all were involved, I was like, yes, it's going to be Because I know I told you earlier I love Hannibal. Um, so I think that it's going to be, it's going to speak to our audience a lot. Great. Um, we, we, we aim to speak to a lot of people. Yes. Yes. Everybody. Yeah. And I think this is the right time to do it so I appreciate your work your hard work and your effort congratulations on a great premiere Um, looking forward to nothing but great things actor Ricky Whittle so I have to ask because we're black girl nerds Mm -hmm. what do you nerd out over the most what do I nerd out Mm -hmm. you got any fandoms any geekdoms I'm a superhero geek myself okay I I will give my left arm, right leg, to be a superhero. Marvel, DC, oh, any of that business. My favorite, I guess, was pro- well, actually, I mean, if I watched from last last year, Deadpool was probably my favorite film last Wasn't year. That good? It was incredible, and Ryan Reynolds was fantastic. Yeah, you know that that guy. I, I I'm a big fan of his work. You know, you do serious, you can do comedy. Wolverine as well, um, by our very own Michael Green. Our producer Michael Green you know, wrote a screenplay for, for Wolverine, uh, Logan, mm-hmm. which was incredible if you've seen that. Not yet. You have to see it. I know. It's an list. adult version yeah. of the Marvel world. You know, it's, it's not the pretty, you know, sweet, cliche, giggly, sweet. No, this is like real Wolverine's kind of been through some stuff. But uh, any of those kind of things where you kind of have to have some sort of like animal instinct or 
you know, you, you kind of got that kind of conflict within you to be a better person. You know, I, I always find, you know, that fascinating. But yeah, any superhero stuff I geek out of. I don't care what, if it's DC or Marvel or whatever. Hancock. <laughs> I loved Hancock. Everyone ripped Will Smith and I was like, I would love to have played Hancock. I'll do Hancock too. There you go. You heard it first. Yeah, I'll definitely do Hancock, do Hancock too. too. I don't care. They'll be like, it's going to ruin your career. I don't care. Yeah. I love the first one and I'll, I'll watch a second one if there is one. So. Do you, um, did you read comics too? Were you into comics? I did, but not comics like that you guys know. In England, we've got a comic called The Beano and okay. The Dandy. Tell me about that. I don't uh, know about that. They're, they're just like Dennis the Menace and, and Nasha, which is like just this mischievous kid with like, it's like a white kid with big Afro black hair. It's bizarre. And he's got a little black dog and they just get into trouble and they wind up their neighbors and they're like, this he's the little kid that walks around with a football under his arm and just causes trouble, like playing football, smashing windows by accident and then trying to cover it up. Um, and that appealed to me as I was a troublesome child. And then, uh, what was it? There was another one as well. But uh, yeah, I, I, I watched kind of, I, I kind of read the, those kind of comics. I was big into Spider-Man comics and Batman yeah. as well. I did, I did like those when I was growing up. But uh, yeah, just any superheroes, any superheroes, goodness. You like fantasy too? Yeah, I can. Okay. I can, not as much, which is amazing considering I'm in a fantasy show. That's one of the great things about our show is, is because it's very grounded. And although there's all these fantasy elements, you know, you've got, you know, at the end of it, real human stories. You know, Laura and Shadow are just, it's a beautiful love story. One of them just happens to be dead. You know, and that's something, although it's very important in a relationship, you forget about when they're talking because it's so beautifully written. Um, and then you've got the buddy-buddy kind of road story with Mr. Wednesday and Shadow, you know. So they're very real situations that anyone can relate to and you know, even the story of the old gods versus the new it's about evolution and not being forgotten you know which again is any, anyone can relate to that these are extraordinary people in in ordinary circumstances so not as big a fantasy fan it has to be kind of like in the right way it's the same way as, as gratuitous shots you know i don't need to see full frontals and nudity you know for gratuitous you know pleasure it, but if it's a powerful image, you know, it, it, where it evokes vulnerability or something, then yeah, by all means. So. Cool. Now, how did you prepare um, to step into Shadow's shoes? Um, the he, he's got very was big shoes. And, yeah. yeah. Did you enjoy it? Absolutely. 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 That's what I like to hear. <laughs> I wonder if ever, anyone actually goes, mm, not really. I mean, I've seen better. No, definitely not probably, happens. but they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> so, no, I just in general, like, any prayer, like any, any prayer, okay. and, and someone just goes, mm, not really. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. No, I mean, firstly, it, it was, there was a physical change. Um, Shadow is described in a book uh, by Neil Gaiman as big enough and don't F with him enough to survive prison without much of a problem. So I went from 175 pounds uh, up to basically about 210, just over 210 pounds. Um, well, Craig Sigilski, Stephanie Burke at Fremantle Media, North America, decided to send me to Unbreakable Gym in Hollywood, which is where all the uh, NFL players go on the hiatus, UFC fighters, uh, MMA fighters. It, it's like just literally a gym full of giants, monsters, and they basically call them now call themselves the Shadow Makers because no, lit no literally that that yeah. because of that it's like they're the Shadow Maker because they created this huge mass by, um, you know, 4,000 calories a day, 
and training for four, two to four hours every day. You know, that was my job. I'd wake up, eat, I'd have five meals a day, five shakes a day, train, uh, a little bit of magic training, go to my acting coach, and then get an early night because I had to do the same again next day. And it really was a huge process to get into that sort of physical condition where he was so big and, and you know, he looked huge on TV. It's, it's, and I don't like the, that look, but, you know, that's what was needed for the role. And, you know, as, as an actor, you, you always want to kind of go that extra mile if you can, and, and that's what I had to do physically for that. Um, Mentally-wise, Neil Gaiman's book is probably the most complex book I've ever read. And, the, you know, to translate that to screen, we, you know, Brian and Michael did a fantastic job. Of, but, yeah, there, there was some parts where I really had to kind of get my thesaurus and get my dictionary and figure out some words mm-hmm. uh, and then come back. And, um, and yeah, it, it's, it's, it's very tough. It, it was like my first experience of green screen and blue screen, you know, where you kind of, the inner child comes out and you're like, you got a director screaming at you, you know, you're climbing up a mountain of skulls, look around you, <gasps> it's a buffalo, no, he's bigger than that, no, he's smaller than that, you know, you, you're just like, okay, what's going on, and you're all over the place, but it's so exciting, um, you know, to, to kind of get these kind of new things under your belt, and it was, it was a lot of fun, and I really, I really enjoyed it, yeah, definitely. Good, so you were on the 100. One hundred, hundred. The hundred. Mm-hmm. The hundred. Right. How does it feel to now be in this leading role in the show as a man of color in a fantasy story? It's fantastic. You know, obviously, you know, everyone knows kind of the, the, the situation back there, and I don't need to spread light on that. But you know, I've always been a big fan of karma, and you know, and and doing things the right way. I'm very much about being a good person and, and trying to be the best you can and and it's for me it means more to me that I kept my morals I you know I stood up for myself and, and for other people and I feel like you know it's 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 a nice little reward where you know I have the honor of of, of leading quite possibly in my opinion the best ensemble cast I've ever seen on TV you know with idols of mine Ian McShane Gillian Anderson Crispin Glover Kristen Chenoweth these are people I watched growing up, and now, like, I'm working alongside them, you know, and if I feel honored and blessed, and even our producers, you know, Michael Green has just done Logan, you know, Brian Fuller did Pushing Daisies, Hannibal, you know, they did Heroes together, it's, it's, it's like, it's a dream come true, it really is, and, you know, I understand we, I have a great responsibility as a, as a man of color, but it's not even a question in our show which is quite nice and refreshing you know it's that's not what's what we talk about it it's who's right for the role you know shadow was was described as ethnically ambiguous and i'd challenge anyone to figure out where i come from you know i don't get much more ambiguous than my look and that's what they they go for and you know they needed a a white person for this role an egyptian for this role you know a black person for this role and it was it was fantastic a redhead for this role it was it was fantastic and 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 very refreshing to where where race wasn't an, uh, an issue in a show that's not black orientated either. It's mainstream, right. you know. And we haven't really seen that since, like you know, Carrie Russell scandal sort of thing. You know, we've got so many fantastic black shows out there, but they're kind of aimed at, at black audiences. And it's nice that we're kind of branching out and and, and reaching into you know the, the, the mainstream. You know, where we get. I just recently watched Get Out. 
just recently yes, by John so Peel. Incredible. But that's, again, bang. It's yeah. not a black film. It's right. a mainstream film. And we're talking about sensitive issues. And, you know, it's great that we're able to kind of raise that awareness um, and also show that, you know, everyone's talented. And, 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 you know, no matter where you're from, all the different cultures, different races, we, you know, there's talent all over the world. Um, Absolutely. And I feel blessed that, you know, someone's put me in, well, not someone's stars, you know, put me in this position to kind of lead an incredible cast. All right, now one last question. Tell me what you think about American Gods in three words. Oh my God. Pun intended. Pun intended. <laughs> That'll do intended. it. Thank you so much. No, thank you for much. It's been great, yeah. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Yutita Badaki and Emily Browning. I think it might be. Yeah. So how was it kind of every world and being kind of on both sides as living and the undead? Yeah. Um, it was interesting. Uh, I don't know if we... We haven't really been referring to Laura as a zombie. I think at one point later in the season, someone says to her, what are you? And she says, I'm an abomination. So I kind of like that title better than zombie. <laughs> She's an abomination. Um, but it was really interesting to try and play a human experiencing death and then re-life, I suppose. Like, I was trying to come at it from a position of, okay, how does this feel? And one one big part of it for me was the fact that Laura... I mean, she, she's not a particularly fearful per- person to begin with just because she doesn't, she doesn't care about anything, really. But I think after you die and you come back to life, there is nothing to fear. Um, and it was also interesting... I remember it was the first day we were shooting and we were shooting a scene where I was waiting for Shadow in the hotel room and Michael Green and I were talking about it and they did this effect where the sun came up and went down and I said, like, I think that Laura should just be sitting still the entire time because Mm -hmm. when you don't have mortality to think about, time is meaningless. Mm -hmm. So she can essentially just sit still because she's... You know, she, there's what what can get her. She's already dead. And, you know, just little things, the physicality, like, does she blink? And does she, you know, and we sort of decided that Laura breathes when it's emotionally relevant. So if she's shocked, she might, and, or she might sigh or something. But for, like, the fight scene, normally in a fight scene, you're, you know, you, you do a big hit or whatever and it's like, <gasps> she, we couldn't do that. So I was just kind of about to have a stroke that whole time or a heart attack or whatever because I was like, okay, I have to be running around like killing these dudes and then just be completely chill about it. So that was interesting, just trying to figure out like in a human way how to find her physicality without making it too over the top, like I'm dead, you know. We had to sort of bring it down to earth to some degree. So it was interesting. It was fun. And did, you have to be, did you have to have your, your arm wrapped up in green screen? Yeah, I had a blue sleeve on. We were just talking about that before. And the scene where um, Audrey and I are in the bathroom, we did the first take of the wide, and I was like, that felt really good. That was a good take. And the director said, yeah, it was, except that you opened the door with your arm that is not meant to exist. So you're going to have to do that again. I was like, oh. 
But um, yeah, it was it was interesting figuring out her her physicality. We had to do a few scenes where the arm was I just sort of casually had to hold my arm up here so that they could paint it out more easily, which is not yeah. not the most comfortable casual thing imagine. in the world. Yeah. But yeah, it was all right. What was your first reaction to reading the script for Ghost? <laughs> 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 yeah, there it is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> no, it was, um, as we all know now, I'm a huge geek. So anything that was sci-fi or fantasy, I've probably read it. And if I haven't, it's on my list. Please, you know. Um, and, and so, I mean, to, to tell you how much of a geek I am, my first crushes were, like, Data and Captain Picard. That's... Very yeah, thank you. So um, I had already been a huge Neil Gaiman fan for a long time. And so when it came out in 2001, sorry. I was no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, 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 it's okay. Keep okay. it there. I'll okay. just watch my yeah, album. Yeah, you can use yeah. me as an armrest. There we go. <laughs> um, <laughs> Please, but, um, go for it. Yeah, when the book came out, I, I did read it back in 2001. And I, yes, the first time I came across that screen, a scene, I was like, I don't know what just happened, but it has given me life. And, you know, I just, you know, uh, it, it was, it was, it was just mind blowing, um, and and it resonated. I couldn't quite put words to it at that time. I just felt it, it makes you feel, right? Something. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. And and nobody has a meh, you know, reaction to it. That there's a reaction, a very strong one. So I, you know, I'd read that so long ago, and it wasn't. Yeah, you know, we fast forward how many years, and now it's. Um, was it 2015? 2017? Oh, like well, no, no, I'm just talking about the audition, oh, girl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not that far gone. <laughs> and uh, yeah, getting that audition and getting those sides, and I'm like, oh, they're making it. They're 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 doing the show, and my audition sides are that scene. I'm. A they are doing the scene. <laughs> and, um, but it was, it was really interesting because that now had been how many years that had gone by between that initial reaction of, okay, something has resonated, but I don't have words for it, to now, okay, you're going to go in a room and audition for this, for the goddess of love. What does this mean to you? And it, it, so I, I had years for it to marinate, which is not something you always get, and which was an incredible opportunity because then things came to the forefront that I'd never fully seen before, like that idea of connection and, uh, you know, that this goddess of love, trying to f find that in, in this time and in this age where we're all about, uh, you know, emails and alternative <laughs> truths. And, and, and so by the time I went into audition with it, it had gotten to this place of... Uh, by the time I went in with Brian and Michael, I was in tears by the end of it. There was such a sense of loss that I hadn't recognized uh, or I hadn't immediately picked up on the first time I read it. And to have that, but also this sense of incredible power, uh, I've not seen sex owned by a woman in that way, and it was incredibly empowering. Sorry. <laughs> Oh, left. Uh, oh, she's an old god. Um, it's a very ancient god, um, and especially when you, well, when I started to look into the research of uh, 
which at first I told my friends, nobody look at my internet browser for a minute. <laughs> it might get a little weird. Um, but even when I came at it through surface places, I kept on coming back to creation myths. You know, um, even looking at Tantra and all of these things that kept on coming back to creation and this this ancient, ancient power. So, I, you know, Bilquis has been around for a minute. Well, but not in that, I mean, not right. in that way. I feel like so often sexuality is in our faces and the women are kind of Objective. cast as the objects. And right. For me, particularly when I watched that Bilkwa scene for the first time when yeah. we were at South by Southwest, I was like, I mean, the whole audience cheered, but I started the cheer. Like, <laughs> I was the first one cheering because... <clears throat> Don't cry. <laughs> it's okay, girl. It's okay. We got this. Okay. <laughs> it was just so kind of... It was just so powerful to see the scene where... I mean, it was, like, emotional and tender, but mm. it was also just... Like seeing a, a woman just like own her sexuality yeah. in that yeah. way was so, was, I don't know, it was really incredible for me to see and for I think everyone in that room to see. It was a really powerful thing. And, and the no apologies part about it. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and I think we've talked about this too, where often you see it as something done to us mm-hmm. as opposed to someone owning it. Mm-hmm. And there's no apologies about it. And, um, I mean, I found that incredibly freeing. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of, it's been a lot of women reaching out, actually, which I'm beautifully, pleasantly surprised by. But they're just reaching out saying, literally, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes that's all the tweet is, is yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, it's, it, I mean, it's been a fascinating journey in that way. And I, I think a lot of um, interesting um, conversations are starting, which mm-hmm. it's, uh, that's about time. I think. Well, women are given a, a lot of choice mm. um, within the show with their characters choosing to be violent or <laughs> choosing to. Because um, I think, if I remember correctly, in the book, Bilquis um, is a prostitute. Yeah. Um, but the show, you know, there's a choice there mm-hmm. when you see it visually. And I'm just wondering, was did you have any? Did both of you have any input in sort of the choices? Right. I mean, I think we were very lucky in the sense that Brian and Michael um, and Neil as well, obviously, mm-hmm. there was never any concern that they were going to write, you know, they were, they were going to do a bad job of writing these women. Right, like, they clearly, right. from the beginning, we've been talking about this in the last few interviews, that it's like, why... What, it's still the biggest thing that the two of us are talking about in a lot of these discussions. It's like, so you get to play these women and they're like people. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, yeah, why are we still talking about this? But of course it's, it's like relevant and necessary. But I think that we, I think it was pretty obvious straight away that we were in good hands with, with Brian and Michael. Like I, the first time I met with them, I said to them, if you if you tell me that she's the heart and soul of the show, I'm leaving. Like I'm not. That's not what I want. I'm so used to people being like, "Well, she's a small part. Like she's the wife, but she's really the heart and soul of the show." It's like, no, you can't fool me with that line again. That's not. And Brian and Michael said, "No. Like I mean, if we're talking about body parts, if anything, she's like the spleen." 
It's like, great, because I've never really gotten to see a woman in a show be the spleen before, <laughs> and I like that. Um, and so we were safe with them, but there was definitely a lot of discussion. Yeah. We were, they made sure absolutely that we were comfortable with everything. And yeah. one thing that was incredibly freeing is that no one, not once ever, made any comment about how we were supposed to look. Yeah. About us looking. No. I mean, Laura specifically is, is gross. Like, through a lot, she keeps decaying over the course of the series. Right. And that was so fun for me to play this character who, like, you know, later on people start telling her that she stinks and she's like, I don't care. Like, it's, yeah. it was really, I don't know, it was fun to, to, to play a character that wasn't, you know, it's you're not here to be eye candy. You're yeah. just... A person who's also a woman and who's also a horrible zombie in my case. <laughs> oh, goddess of love. Yeah. Um, no, yeah. I, and I love what you said earlier about um, how uh, th- that our characters were more informed. You saw them shift over time uh, when you got the different scripts as mm-hmm. as they got to know us and as they, you know, so in that way mm. there was a. a that influence. Yeah, they were writing. You could tell when when you got like episode eight, which wasn't written at the beginning, mm-hmm. that the way that they were writing the characters was sort of growing along with our performances, which is right. nice. And the thing is, I mean, like Brian Fuller is one of the the biggest allies of women. You, I mean, he he gets an honorary woman card. I, yes, I said it, Brian. <laughs> you do. Um, but no, someone that really truly is is interested in, in the female experience and 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 really wants to know, you know, and and, and really wants to try and explore. And and I I think that's something really uh, fascinating about someone saying, yeah, I don't know what your experience is. Mm -hmm. Tell me. Um, I mean, I think if we all did that a little bit more, there would be... (laughs) There would be... But also someone whose default Mm -hmm. is to just write women as humans. As human beings. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of writers don't do that right it's like so we've got all the characters these cool characters and then oh we need to bring in a woman it's like <laughs> well, I, wait. it's just like yeah. well, i don't know it, it doesn't seem like there's no part of brian and michael that's yeah. like proud of themselves like no. well we wrote yeah. a complicated woman it's like no we just wrote a bunch of people and it it's not a struggle for us to have these interesting female characters it's not right. a struggle for us to have like a diverse cast it's just they just do it and it that's how it should be in my opinion yeah Yeah. and and then of course you've got the blueprint from Neil Gaiman from the get-go um who who said yeah no this character is this so we're Mm -hmm. not gonna mess with that Mm um yeah First off, you've never seen a zombie like this before. Well, no, it's not a zombie. It's just this awesome dead girl. I don't know what she is. Yeah, yeah. But as far as love in the age of technology, it's, it's, 
I mean, it was wonderful to be able to research this character because really it gave me a chance to look at something that is happening all around us. Um, we were talking about that New York Times uh, article where millennials were found to be having less sex. Because they're all on their phones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just uh, less intimacy, (laughs) right? But also less intimacy in general. And and our fear about talking about intimacy. I was saying that, you know, Bruce, uh, who plays Technical Boy, and I are, you know, we're we're pretty good friends. And we'd go somewhere, and people would introduce, here's, you know, he plays the Technical Boy, and he is Bilquish. She plays the Goddess of Love. And people like, oh, yeah, okay, I read this book on technology. There's this documentary you should read about technology, and blah, blah, blah. And then they look at me and go, uh, okay. And then the other technology book, you know, and, and like, it's, you know, it's a funny anecdote. But it's also, I think, so telling to, about where we are in regards to intimacy, we're afraid of it, it feels like. And I remember one of my favorite uh, documentaries is um, The Artist is Present, Marina Abramovic. Oh, yeah. And where she would sit and look at someone, right? And do you see how many people broke down in tears? People got Mm -hmm. emotional. People got, because that kind of connection is is something I feel Mm -hmm. we're lacking. And, And now to talk about playing a goddess of love, in this age, she's anemic. I mean, we're seeing all kinds of things that want to package and sell love, but it's never actually love. It's just this empty, pretty box, and we buy more and more and more of it, and we're still feeling this empty hole, and we buy more and more, but meanwhile, we're missing that that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and not to say, you know, I'm not preaching doom and gloom, but it, I think the first step is being aware. That, that this is happening, that, that maybe we are not spending time just listening scene. to each other. Yes, yeah. yes. Is that how you would interpret that particular scene? Um, trying to consume <laughs> all because there's less of it available? Like, yes. <laughs> I mean, it almost felt to me like trying to crack open a, you know, like a coconut with, with the life, like a, on being on a desert island and there's the life-giving nutrients in there and just literally wanting to crack it open. Um, but it's also, you know, as, as we see more that we, we do realize it is in that um, ancient form, is it is a give and take. You know, she doesn't just take from her worshipers. I, I think in the way of the old gods, there was a contract I give you something, and you give me something. And you knew you entered into it, and, and you went in with eyes wide open. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you ch- yeah, yeah, something <laughs> like that. Um, but then, then the newer gods, it's... it's you it, don't even have a choice yeah, in yeah. your worship. You're, you're just, just kind in front of, of you. throwing that devotion. And mm-hmm. then, I mean, I might be biased as an old god, but really, <laughs> what are you getting back, guys? Is all I would say. Yeah. yeah. Yes. What do we... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> I think Emily has something. Yeah. To <laughs> I definitely. I mean, I think TV is just a more exciting place to be right now in general. Really, um, I def. I've never really done TV before, except when I was much younger in Australia on like cop shows and that kind of thing um when I was playing like 12 year old criminals which I did a lot of which is odd um (laughs) but uh yeah absolutely I think I 
I was a little bit hesitant to sign on to a TV show because I was worried about signing away seven years or whatever. Um, But what I realized is that it's really fun to be with a character as it grows. And like Itide was saying before, you see the writers start to create the character and shape the character around you. Um, And that was amazing. And now to, you know, we're already talking with Brian and Michael about what's going to happen in season two and what are we... I mean, we haven't gotten season two yet, but I'm... Yes, watch this We're all, we're all the, feeling the positive. official on that one. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> but it's really nice to have a say in that and to grow with the character. But, but yes, to actually answer your question, I think... Um, I mean, all of the best roles that I've read recently have been have been TV roles. We were just talking in the last room about Fleabag. I don't know if anyone... Has anyone seen Fleabag? Oh, my God. <laughs> Thank you. Everyone, ha- you all. I know, but she's going to make a season two, I think. I think they actually announced a season two, thank God. Because it's just, I mean, to see to see a woman who's just really flawed and messy mm-hmm. and a real human. Yeah, mm-hmm. this is another thing we've been talking about a lot today is I think people misinterpret this idea of when, I, when women say, like, I want to play a strong female character, it doesn't mean a female character who, like, kicks butt and has a gun. It does. I mean, it can mean that, Only, but it yeah. just means we want as much variation mm-hmm. as dudes have always <laughs> had. You know, I want to play, like, a really weak, pathetic character, and I, if it's written well, then I consider that a strong character do you know what I mean I want to play like a horrible person yeah Yeah, just the three-dimensional like fully fleshed out with flaws and all yeah Yeah. and I think Laura is definitely I mean she's incredibly flawed and she's very (laughs) difficult and you know it was nice to not I've done roles before where where you know, producers and directors have said, we really need to make the audience love her. Mm. I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. Like, if I'm thinking about that while I'm performing, there's no way that I'm going to become a relatable, real person. And no one on this show ever said that. Actually, if anything, after the first episode, Brian and Mike were like, you need to make her worse. She needs to be more of an asshole. <laughs> they're, like, you, they're like, you have kind of an innocent face, so you can really go for the, like, make her... Horrible. I was like, great. It was just, I don't know, it's fun. And I can't get enough of her. I'm sorry. As I watch it, I'm like, Laura. Yeah. <laughs> Makes me proud. I didn't know Brian's history. I mean, I knew what he'd done, but I didn't know his history with women, you know, and creating women characters. Mm-hmm. And so when I watched the first episode, I was blown away by just, you know, everything that went on it. But then I was also kind of like, oh, where are they going? Because in the first episode, they have you, you know, with this infamous scene, and then they have mm-hmm. you portrayed as like this and then like you're mm-hmm. not an angel and so mm-hmm. it's like where are they going but then by the end of it I really love like you say it wasn't that she's a strong character like she's not a kick ass I mean she does kick a lot of ass too but <laughs> she's you know you see all these sides of her she goes yeah. from the angel to the worst mm-hmm. but like somewhere in the middle and then you get to identify with her so mm-hmm. what I mean besides all that what drew you to both of you to these roles yeah I think and that the angel thing that you said that was really intentional as well because the fir- some of the first scenes that I shot were the scenes of coming into Shadow's dreams and his fantasies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. And we were talking about it and I was like, I think that for people, I mean, people who have read the book know, they know what Laura's like. But I was like, for people who haven't, I want for the first three episodes for them to think 
that I'm playing like the fantasy dream wife because mm. I think that would be funny in a way because I think anyone who's ever read an interview with me knows that I don't <laughs> want to do that and so I that's the only time that we did like the pretty makeup we did like the dream makeup where I was all because it was his idealized version of me um and that was so much fun to play the, like oh puppy I love you and then when you meet her in episode four you're like oh boy that is not what she's <laughs> like at not. all <laughs> which was really I think that's that's like an enjoyable twist for me to watch um but I mean I when I was sent the scripts I was obviously sent episode four because if I had have just read episodes one two and three I would have been like no this is not uh, this is an amazing story but this character's really boring um but then I mean I just I don't know how you could say no to a character like that I thought she was so brilliantly written I think that she does all of these really morally questionable things but then the fact that they've they're kind of delving into her history and her backstory I mean it doesn't necessarily make all the things that she's doing justifiable, but I think it helps you to s- at least empathize with her to a degree to kind of understand like, oh, okay, she's a mess. She's like really sad. She is being cruel to people, but I don't think she even realizes that. I mean, the scene with one of my favorite moments to shoot is the scene where I'm, Laura's telling Shadow that she wants him to rob the casino and he's like, she says she's not happy and it just sort of comes out naturally Mm. and he says I would be happy living in a cardboard box under a bridge with you and she says that would represent a failure to me (laughs) (laughs) which is yeah but but she doesn't even she's just she doesn't have much self-awareness and she doesn't Laura is one of those people that doesn't have very much empathy you Mm. know Um, and that's exactly what I was talking about it's like I want to play a character that I don't necessarily want to be like, you know. I think a few people have said, like, is she a role model? I'm like, hell no, not at all. But I I do think maybe, like, the one really inspiring thing about her is that she doesn't care what anyone thinks. And I think that is cool to – I mean, I want to see more women like that on TV, someone who just doesn't – really doesn't have any fucks left to give. She just doesn't. She doesn't care. So, yeah, I mean, I, I read that episode and was I was on board immediately. Yeah. No, um, I, I think it's Ian that says this a lot, that nothing is as what it seems. Mm-hmm. Um, and every character, you think you might know them and you think you might know what their motivations are, but the, if you follow them long enough, it, mm-hmm. it might all change. Um so, yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of uh, fun things in store, and, and you do have these fully fleshed-out characters that have all their different motivations and are just trying You're to survive. You're being so good at not giving away spoilers Yes! Again. You're so good at that. <laughs> I got my dancing shoes on. Uh, that's what I think, because I tend to dance around it. Um, <laughs> but uh, as far as things that drew me, I mean, apart from being a Neil Gaiman fan and, and loving the sci-fi and loving the fantasy, is that I do, do remember really being drawn to the idea of the immigration story in there. And, mm-hmm. and, and this reminder, I think, that we may all need that, you know, that, that, that this uh, beautiful tapestry that we exist in is as a result of all these individuals bringing in the different threads. And that if you look back far enough, we all came from somewhere. And, and that really resonated and was something that I uh, felt was fun to play with. 
Yeah, and I think something that's, I mean, we shot the show before, mm. I mean, we finished like the first week of November last year. So then everything that happened after that was like, <laughs> I mean, it, it, we were doing a, a panel the other day and, and Ricky was answering this question. Yeah. He was sort of like, yeah, I mean, after, we were just really fortunate that after the election, the show became a lot more relevant. I was like, not fortunate. Let's not, I don't think fortunate <laughs> is the word. word. Yeah. <laughs> but I know what, yeah, fortunate, let's not use that when we're yeah. referring to all that stuff that happened um, and is still terrifyingly happening. Um, but I do think that now a lot of the stories that we're telling in the show are, are, are more relevant than ever. I mean, it was relevant in 2001 right. when the book came out. Right. But, um, yeah, I mean, we're, I think the show, we're not, we're not dictating any particular points of view. We're, like, asking questions, trying mm. to make people think about certain things that they maybe don't generally think about when they're sitting down watching TV. But I do think that one point that's very clear that we're making is that immigrants make America a wonderful place. Right. I think like that's what makes America great, really, right. is all of the different cultures. Because yeah. I think maybe people have forgotten that a little yeah, bit. A little bit. But <laughs> so. and then as far as you know, what would draw to this project, then you also have this incredible team on every level, mm -hmm. down to hair, makeup, set design. I mean, this group of people is, uh, it's a dream. I, I'm mm -hmm. not quite sure how. Well, it's like you were saying before, like, people say, oh, you, are you, you know, are you, do you feel a lot of responsibility about what the fans are going to think? It's like, no, it's the fans that are making the show. Like, we're mm -hmm. the fans. We're <laughs> the fans. Like, this is, <laughs> how, I mean, Brian and Michael are like, <sighs> incredible. yeah, I don't think there's anything really to worry about in that sense because yeah. it's, it's fans of the book that are making the show. Yeah. We are out of time. Oh, all right. Sorry. We, we, did our, we did our rambling again. <laughs> I know. We, we tend to ramble. <laughs> <laughs>
<coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Don't anyone touch me. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> what was the scene that made you cry? It's actually the buffalo when they were just in the scene and running, and I just thought, wow, this is just this is like a film. And I thought, you know, Game of Thrones said I'm a big Game of Thrones fan. I thought they d touched on some some really cinematic, nice shots, but this in combination with the heavy text and the caring about the characters a lot. I just I just think it just it just made me proud to be part of it, you know. So how much of the book, reading the book, informed your portrayal? Well, I read it, and when I called Brian back, I said, are you sure? <laughs> you sure? Uh, and he said, yeah, with Neil's blessing, we kind of looking at it a little different, and she's got this facade, and she's, but she's boiling underneath. And then, then I was like, oh. So he said, don't worry about that and play the spirit of it. And I think that's what we've done here. But I was, I was like, are you sure? Like, this seems a little maybe out of left field. But they're taking a few liberties. But I think the readers of the book, um, of which I am, I think they'll be very happy to see these worlds looking so specific. I think stars took it to a whole new level. I think it just looks. I always get a little crazy when people say, oh, it looks so good. I'm like, well, what is it, though? But what is it? It's very clear. It's very good, in my opinion. Well, what can you tell us about the character and what she's all about? Well, you know, she has been around since the beginning, and Ostaria is um, now having to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on her special day, and she's a little bitter about it. She has had to find a way to be accepting and tolerant, politically correct with sharing of this day, of her day. And um, that's, that's what was so fun about playing. I did scenes with Jesus himself. And um, she's actually really um, a complicated woman. I think she had her day, and now Wednesday's inviting her back into a world that she forgot that she was great. And in the finale, you get to see why she's who she is. And I like that. Again, I don't always get to do cool effects type shows that have, you know, I'm usually dialogue heavy, character heavy, but this is all of that plus cool, you know. There's a big powerful moment for, the, for, these, for this woman. And Brian is so um, aware of the strength of women in general. And he has very strong women in the piece, and I'm glad he's chosen to keep that. Do you, so it sounds like you really enjoy sort of like the, the evolution yeah, of the Jesus experience, because at first I was thinking Easter, because Easter always seems very constant. Yeah, right? Just the same every year, you're going to church, you church. <laughs> exactly. Church. You go to brunch. Right, and you go to BBQs, and <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that I think is the most interesting about this part of the show, and, and especially at the end, is we have a certain way of how we view Jesus, right? We have a vision of what we think, what we've been told our whole life that he looks like. Um, but I actually work with 13 Jesuses, mm -hmm. and they represent all different walks of life. And that's just how Brian Fuller's mind thinks. 
um, I have a lot of people, uh, let's say spirits, that work under me in this episode um, that are shorter than me, that speak and talk. And um, I loved that as well. But, you know, trying to imagine that when you're in a scene and then having it happen and seeing it. I got out of looping maybe two days ago, two, two or three days ago, and I cried because I just thought he captured the spirit of competition and the question of where we are at our, in 2017, who's relevant, how fast are we going, and are we going to be able to keep up, and more importantly, where are we going? These are the questions in the piece, I think, that are being asked as well. And they keep using the word relevant. It's really, it's really about where are we going, who's going to stay, how are they going to deal with it. And I understand that because, remember, I've been around for a second, and I remember when Twitter came, and I thought that was the stupid, stupid idea. And now, of course, I love it. So it's like getting in bed with the devil that you like. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm going to re-quote that. Um, she's a little pissed because this was her one day. The way I liken it is if you have two actors and they have a movie come out the same day, different films, right? You just want your own day, right? And she's got to live with the resurrection of Jesus every year. And so she's a little pissed off. And I think it's it's what I said to Brian. So if there had been a Miss America at the beginning of time, would she have been Miss America? He said, he thought about it, I go, or would she have lost and been Miss Congeniality? And he said, that's it. So dealing with, I mean, I'm just re trying to relate it to, you know, <laughs> looking at where I fit. And when I came in, I said to him, I'm nervous, because all the actors had to have time in each of their worlds, and they knew the tone. And I said, I want to fit, and I don't want to take up anybody's time. I just want to fit. I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to fit in there. I don't." And he said, that's Easter. And that made it clear for me. And that's what she's still trying to do. But once she gets a taste of what she used to be, and she's get, being given permission to release, it's a sight to behold. And I just wouldn't want to get on her bad side. Correct. <laughs> Correct. I mean, in, in Easter's opinion, she's the most powerful God. But she's accepted her life. You know, it's like when an actor comes back from the dead and we think, oh, they were great again. What ha wow, I forgot how great they were. That's Easter. She's got her life. She set it up. She's got her sheep. She's got this beautiful home. She's entertaining. And then I just like to use the word permission when Wednesday comes in and asks her to join him, to remember, and she lets go. That's a good. That's a good moment. That's a good moment for any person, actually, being given permission to be your authentic self. I'm just wondering how how the two of you sort of developed, or you know, how you sat down and thought. Well, um, Easter has always sort of revolved around the story of Jesus, but what about outside of it? What, what exists within the sort of Easter tradition that doesn't? You know, but it's also the one thing that. That's right. It's Easter. Right. And some people, you know, I'm actually a person of faith, so I celebrate, I do celebrate 
Jesus Christ's resurrection. I do personally. But that was one of the reasons I was um, in, sort of inspired to do the part, to be honest with you, because as a Christian person, I'm frustrated with where we are. As, Christ, as, as a group, I feel that we need to be a little bit more accepting, not just tolerance, tolerant, but accepting of people who don't believe like us. And this has been a, a message of mine for a long time, but it just, I just can't seem to, it keeps falling on deaf ears. We are supposed to be the ones, right, who accept and love all and pe accept people for where they are in their life. And yet, it feels like sometimes we get lost in, in that. And I wish we wouldn't. And I wanted to play Easter because I wanted to sort of represent sometimes the audience of, it's not just about Jesus, it's about bunnies and chocolate and, you know, there's, there's both worlds. And this is actually American gods. It's the old school, new school, how they fit together, if they can fit together. And when they, become, when they come together, which is something that I would love to see our country understand, when we unite, we're stronger. And when we're divided, we're not. We're singular. And I, I don't know. There's, to me, it's, it's a little freaky how it fits today. Do you think that the, that technology or media has something to do with the crumbling hmm. foundation? It's like I said earlier, you know? It's getting in bed with the devil you like. And it's a necessary part of, I can only speak like with business the business part of it. It's a necessary part of it. But I'd much rather discuss it through social media where, where I like to eat, the latest thing that I like to, where I get go get my hair cut, someplace that don't, I don't want people to go, <laughs> which is my new thing. Um, but yeah, I don't, I didn't understand how important that aspect of it was. And now I understand it. It's important though to still get out my notebook and still write. And st our kids today, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry. A lot of people can't even write. They can't pay attention. So media, in fact, Gillian Anderson playing the, the, the new goddess, um, the, she's creating this role of media. It is, is it the Antichrist? Is it? Or is it the next best thing? But I, I just... I just think we always have to be aware of how far it goes. Look at, look at leaks, and I mean, I just did a pilot for, for CBS about Ed Snowden and the, the leaks and the FBI, and I just, I guess you can't have it all. Either you go there or you don't. And we have gone there, so we've started. How is Easter even a god, though? Like, the leprechaun really isn't either. Well, I asked Brian the same yeah. thing and Neil, and um, what came back to me was she's self-appointed. <laughs> I liked that as well. I thought it was perfect with a wave, but <laughs> you know how people self-appoint. Some may even say our president, um, but you know how see people self-appoint, and then you just people buy into it. But she actually does have talent. Yeah, self-realization. Self yeah, exactly. I'm interested, if we're talking about how this, this adaptation in particular is really drawing the women out of the text, and yes. what is your response to not only your own 
mm. transformation of Belfast because she's not a prostitute in this adaptation. She is making the choice to draw these people in. She's putting herself out there. What were your reactions to seeing that change? I loved it. I loved it, and I know that this is going to go over really big, but any woman who can eat someone with their vagina, <laughs> I'm in. No. Um, I, just, I just thought it just makes her, it's not about, like you said, about the prostitution, you know? It's about her choice and her strength, and that's what attracted me to her, and I, I'm so impressed with the actress portraying her. Nidite is incredible. And then you have Jillian, who's taking on all the personas. And then you have Emily, who's decomposing as we speak, but not giving Shadow any flack. I mean, any room to, you know, she takes him on. She takes anybody on. And I think that's the key with the women here. They take anybody on and without apology. So I like the direction of that, obviously, being a strong woman myself. Yes. In the media, strong women are given the Maxine. Yeah, of course. Of course. Discriminated. And I'm sure when you guys were filming, you know, prior to, you know, probably the results of the So, no, I actually, it completely makes sense what you're asking. And while we were shooting uh, in Toronto, it was August for me. And like I said, the, all of them had been together. And Hillary Clinton was, you know, coming in, coming in at the end, just pushing it in. And this is, for no matter how anyone voted, spoken like Easter would say, very politically correct. But I was so impressed with how she handled being spoken to and about, if she had been a man, it would be different. That is my opinion. Um, I knew that it, the women would come across strong and be portrayed strong because I know the writer. And I knew that that's what Neil Gaiman and Brian Fuller and Michael Green wanted. They specifically said to me, I mean, Brian Fuller, you got to understand, I've worked with, with him from, since Pushing Daisies, and I have worked with pigs, horses, sheep, rabbits, bees, cows, they all are treated so well, even the bees. I'm like, just kill them. Let's swat them to death. And he's like, no, Kristen, no. That's how he looks about everybody in the show, no matter male, female, woman, man, uh, same thing, no matter who they are. And I love that. And that, that's the message, I think, that he's showing more than just a strong woman. I think he's sending a message of strength and like I said each of these worlds are so specific they could live on their own that's what I was trying to picture how's it gonna how are their transitions going to be transitions are the hardest thing as you know even on and, and on just a set or a play we're worried about getting from A to B okay now this scene now this scene I was thinking four worlds how are they gonna do it they did it they did it Easter one of the older new gods She's old. But she could also be new, like, 
because I mean Easter survives into the modern age and adapts like with the bunny. That's what I say. Thank you very much. <laughs> I agree with you, sir. <laughs> I think that, you know, much like media, she's found a way to survive. And that's what they say. That's the definition of a survivor, right? Figuring a way, out a way to last. And that is definitely her. Definitely her. <laughs> she's silly. She's silly until she's not. And then, man, you don't want to be on her bad side. I think we all know women like that. Or how about people in general? Does your character involve a, oh, sorry. Does your character involve a lot of uh, CG enhancements? Well, you know, I haven't done a lot of scripts or films, movies, TV shows with a lot of, it's been text-heavy, character-heavy, and this has all three. I never had to do a lot of effects before, so this has been new for me. And it has been, when you go in and you loop it and you look at your you know, the dialogue and, oh, crap, now I see what it's really looking like. That's what's incredible. And I like it. I always, Brian Fuller knows how we really bonded is I love science fiction and I love horror. Those are my two favorite genres. And it doesn't exactly match up with me, right? But that, there you go. There's another dichotomy for you. I love, love Silence of the Lambs. And we were, I quoted it on set one day and he goes, are you kidding me? Is that what I think it is? I said, Silence of the Lambs, baby get out unless you're going to play with the big boys yes and that's how we started and but he never does anything gratuitous either and that's another reason that I have such uh, respect for him a big fan in fact he'd written a part for me on it and I was on Broadway it was a part of an opera singer who you know gets it and I said oh I just want to die and be eaten but (laughs) I was really devastated I couldn't do it because of just pure schedule pure schedule that was the only reason but yeah I'm a big fan of Hannibal that's the same man who wrote Pushing Daisies wrote Dead Like Me who's writing American Gods he's singular there's so there's only one of him It's going to be Wednesday. Um, You know, I see her as sort of, she floats. When she comes in, no, she's not a singer, but she's musical. And she wants everyone to feel comfortable, of course, until they don't feel comfortable. But I would love to see them go on an adventure and see what their powers together bring. Two is better than one, as I always say. And I love, really love working with the entire company. I've really worked with Jillian and Ricky and Ian the most. And Jeremy, my Jesus, one of my Jesuses. But I, I just, for, for me, it was a, the good quadruple group. And it feels really right to be with Ian. I don't know, it feels like he's from another time. And I understand that. I understand that. I don't know, it's a click or something. He's also a good singer, by the way. How would you compare the uh, different types of acting that you've done, uh, stage, mm-hmm. movies, and this television? What's that movie where they say um, about the baseball field, if you build it, they will come? That, that movie. I think that when, it, when I look at a part, I look at it like that. Like, if it's a good part, 
I don't care if it's on stage, can't, TV, or film. I don't care if it's a small screen, big. I just don't care. If it's a good part, I'm not an idiot. I'm going to take it. And I just, I think I adjust for different, if I'm on stage, I'm going to play for the back of the house, but I'm still going to have the same intent. Same with, same with this role. I'm not playing for the back of the house. You know, I'm playing for the group or one person. But the t- intent, the intention is still there and the spirit of the part and the person. When I look at the different types of work I've had to do and got, I should say got to do, like an Oklahoma girl, got to do. I played a girl in the White House that was supposed to be smarter than everybody. I played on TV a waitress who can't get a date who's in love with a guy who's in love with a dead girl. I love, played a drunk has-been high school star on Glee and a good Christian bitch in Dallas. And all of these worlds are very different. But, and of course, on stage, it's even been more diverse. So it's just, I just look at it as I get to play for a living. And I hope I never get, never have to stop because I do love what I do and I'm inspired constantly by music and by beautiful language and this whole world. I love it. We'll see. We'll see how long she lasts. <laughs> <laughs> Who's it gonna be? Yes. Um, I'm developing a show uh, about Tammy Faye Baker, if you recall her. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Isn't it interesting <laughs> that everybody goes, oh my God. I Thank you. I'm all about the lashes, baby. We're still, we, we have a script coming in anytime. So um, David Yazbek has come on board to write it with Henry Krieger, who wrote Dreamgirls, as you know. And um, there's, other, there's two other projects I have theatrically that I'm also involved with, but they, they allow me to have a little bit more time. This will be probably the next. Yeah. Well, you know, religion just keeps coming back, doesn't it? Thank you. Author Neil Gaiman. Um, I made a story about them because I, because uh, in 1992 I moved to America, and um, having been writing stories set in America for at least the previous five years, with working for DC Comics, and I moved out to very near Minneapolis, and I thought that I understood, um, I thought I understood America. I, I thought I, I had a grasp on the place. I'd been writing about it. I'd, I'd known Americans. I had grown up watching American TV and seeing American movies. And then I was living in the Midwest, and I was looking around, and I was going, this place is weird. And I would tell my friends, I would say, isn't this weird? And they'd go, well, how do you mean? And I'd say, well, this thing where, where they, they drive a car out onto the ice every winter as soon as it's solid. And then they take bets on when 
the ice is going to melt enough for the car to go in. Um, isn't that weird? And they go, no, no, that's normal. We do this out here. And and I go, okay, well, that thing where with the roadside attractions, explain that to me. I've just, you know, driven my daughter across the state and we stopped and we looked at um, down near Stevens Point, Wisconsin, there is still a huge truck trailer with a glass side inside of which is a full-size yellow polystyrene replica of what was the largest block of cheese in the world at the 1961 World's Fair, and it's still there, and you can go and see it. And people do. You know, you cannot get there without people, cars drawing up and people standing there and looking at this thing. And I'm going, isn't this weird? And they're going, well, no, this is just what people do. And that was bizarrely where it all started, was me going, I have to make sense of this place. I have to try and understand this. Maybe if I put this all in a book, which as... As a, as a writer is normally the way that I try and figure things out. Um, so I spent about six years just accumulating this stuff in my head and trying to understand the immigrant experience, trying to understand what it meant to have come here from somewhere else. And somewhere in there bits of story started to accumulate. And then one day I was in uh, Iceland. I was in Reykjavik, very sleepless, and I looked down at a tabletop diorama in a tourist board office um, of the voyages of Leif Erikson. And I thought, that's interesting. I, I wonder if they brought their gods with them to America. And then I thought, I wonder if they took their gods back with them when they left. And suddenly I had a book in my head and it was just like everything opened up. And I thought, yes, there's America. I can talk about America as a country of immigrants, um, as a country of people who came here from somewhere else by using gods. The idea of these, these gods who represent everything that people brought with them and then abandoned. And the idea of the new gods, the idea of the gods of technology, of cell phone, of media, and all of the other new gods who've sort of come and gone in American history. There must have been a time when the gods of telegraph were incredibly important. The gods of the railroads would have been proudly reshaping um, the shape and nature of America. And, and now their day is sort of long gone and, and they're old and in decline. And it was just a, it was one of the things that you do as if you're an author who likes the fantastic is you get to make your metaphors real. And for me, I got to take a bunch of metaphors and make them very real. And that was where it all came from, and that was who the American gods were. It was, it was old versus new. It was old world versus new. It was all of the things that grab people's attention now and all of the things that once commanded our attention and love and respect but do so no longer um, engaged in a sort of glorious mess of a road novel, because road novels are always glorious messes. 
And so that was what I did, and that was what Brian and Michael responded to. Um, and now I have to turn off my phone. Which in my pocket. A little dying American got it. The last Blackberry in captivity. <laughs> Now, what would happen um, all through the early uh, 2000s, because the book was published uh, January, uh, June the 19th, um, 2001. And I, I went and did a, a signing in Borders Books in the World Trade Center. That was the first signing I did. And three days after I got back from the book tour, it was no longer there. And the world had changed, but somehow it felt like it was absolutely part of the fabric of the novel still. It didn't feel like my novel had become outdated. Um, but what would happen is I would get phone calls. And I get phone calls from directors who I had heard of. And I'm rubbish at actors and directors and people, so... For me to be impressed, and it's like, oh, I, I know who you are. Um, and they would phone me up, and they would say, I, I picked up American Gods in an airport bookstore. I read it on my flight to so-and-so. I cannot get it out of my head. I think it would be an amazing movie. I just have one question for you. How would you turn this into a movie? And... I say, and I would say to them, it's, I have no idea. It's not movie-shaped. Um, it was written at a time, 1996, 97, 98, I was writing a lot of film scripts. Uh, the only one that I think ever actually got made was uh, Beowulf. Um, but there were lots and lots of film scripts. There were I, was, I did many drafts of a Neverwhere movie. There was working on, on Death, The High Cost of Living. Um, there was... Oh, and Stardust sort of got made. But, but I, w I was doing a lot of things that were 120-page stories with beginnings and middles and ends. And everything happened in the right place. And by the time I got to American Gods, I was so tired of those. It's like, okay, this is going to be enormous. And it's going to have beginnings, and it will have middles, and it will have ends. But it will have lots of beginnings and middles and ends. And it will have digressions and diversions. And if I feel like writing a short story, I will just write a short story and put it in there. And it will have bits set in history. And it will... I, this will be my book. So, um, so big, shapeless, not a movie. And they would say to me, how would you turn this into a movie? And I would say, I have no idea. It is not film-shaped. And they'd say, well, don't you have any ideas? And I'd say, no, because once you take this down to 120 minutes, it's not American Gods anymore. And they would go, go yeah, good point. And I would never hear from them again. And a couple of years would go by, and another one would phone up, and it's like, I've heard of you. And we would have the same thing. So I was very... Um, and, and at that point in time, obviously, TV was not an option for something like this. So I, it, I just assumed that 
American Gods was something that would never happen. And I was fine with that. I, it's a book. I'm proud of it. It won more than its fair share of awards, and it's gone on to become, much more importantly, people's favorite book. You know, I will run into people, and they will show me their copy of American Gods that went around the world with them in their backpack, and it has been rained on, and it has fallen in soup, and half of the cover is missing, and, you know, and they tell me the stories, and it's just like, and that's wonderful. Um, and then things started to change, and you could feel things starting to change with the whole sort of new form television thing. And in 2011, 2012, um, there was a, a couple of years spent with it at HBO, where and and it was it it wasn't really even the fault of HBO you know the person who loved american gods and bought it loved it bought it i wrote a script by the time i handed it in the person who had loved it and bought it was no longer there and the people who were there had no idea what this thing was and didn't really get it and that and it was actually a relief when you know one more draft of a script and a polish later, they just let it go back to us because there was nobody there who loved it and believed in it or, or frankly understood it. So that was fine. Um, and, but what was great was the one of the executives at Playtone, Tom Hanks's company, with whom I'd gone to HBO had moved to Fremantle, uh, Stephanie Burke, and she had loved it. And her first thing was, you know, if the rights come back, Playtone are locked into a deal with HBO, so they couldn't do anything with it anymore, which was sad because I loved them and I loved Tom. Um, but Stephanie was like, can, can we do it? And I was like, absolutely. So... We went and we talked to showrunners. We uh, April the first, April the f um, April first, twenty fourteen. I flew to Toronto and met Brian Fuller, and we sat in the lobby of the Shangri La Hotel and uh, just talked about American Gods. And Brian was great, and also very, very human in that he was like, I love American Gods. I bought it when it came out. I am a fan. I'm a fan of yours. I'm a fan of this book. I love it. I don't know how we turn it into a TV series. And that actually I found weirdly more, more inspiring of confidence than I would a kind of smart, slick, person saying okay well this is how we're going to do it because it was like all I could tell was that it resonated for Brian just as much as it did for me and that he wanted to make it a real thing so that was anyway so so that's how we had this sort of long journey here and 
Absolutely, I recall their names. And no, you're not going to get them from me. <laughs> that would be mean. You know, what? one of the things that's really interesting right now is watching the way that the gods in the book have evolved in the 18 years. It's almost, it's not like, you know, I'm, I'm sure that we will meet new gods that are not in the book as things go on. Um, but part of the fun for me is seeing the way that people have changed between what I wrote and what we have now. Um, I love Orlando's Mr. Nancy. And because there's a kind of... His, it's absolutely still a Nancy. It's, and it's still Mr. Nancy. It's just a younger feistier, Black Lives matter era, um, Mr. Nancy. And he, but, he's, but you're going, yes, it's the same God. He's just, this is what he would look like right now. Um, Bruce's technical boy is wonderful, I think, because in, and I remember having long talks with, with Brian and Michael um, about Technical Boy because the Technical Boy that I wrote was the Technical Boy of 1999 when he, he came in, when the idea of a dot-com was one of them new things. Exactly. MySpace was popping. Exactly. <laughs> my, I, I, my was popping um, you know, AOL was how people... You've got mail. That was how... That was, that was the nearest people got to tech. And... And the people who were at the forefront of tech at that point in their own sort of little way um, tended to be, you know, kind of nerdy, awkward people who had discovered that you could, there, there were ways to order pizza and have it brought to you without actually talking to somebody and that was the best thing in the world and they were excited about that the idea of um, you know it was hand rolled synthetic toad skin cigarettes back then um, what I like about our technical boy is he's still the same character um, he's absolutely still as desperate, as, as awkward, and, and has that horrible teenage something-to-prove quality that the original Technical Boy had. Um, but, this is, he, but this is in a world in which apps are ubiquitous, in which everybody is holding their phone, in which... Um, the nature of our relationship to technology has changed in the last 20 years in very, very weird ways so that it's... 
you know, the, the, I remember a world not long gone when if you wanted some kind of cable for some kind of computer appliance, you had to find the special place that sold that cable. And you had to find the computer store, and you had to go in there. And, and there were strange little people in there who seemed like they hadn't seen the light of day in a while, but they, but they knew where the cables were, and they could, they could give you the correct cable, and you would go out of there with your cable feeling like you'd, you'd accomplished something, some kind of high and lonely quest. Um, and now any cable you could possibly want is sitting up at the front in the drugstore um, in pretty colors for people to grab and take. <laughs> because that's the world we're in right now. And with, with technology and, and media sort of giving birth to social media, which has become its own huge sort of entity, um, do you think that, that would be, social media would be something completely separate from the two I, I would love to watch. I'd, I'd love to see if we can explore that a little bit in, in seasons to come. Um, um, because it's yeah I mean what social social media for me is fascinating because it comes and it goes Um, I remember signing up for Twitter um, in 2008 and going this is wonderful it's like this magic little village where everybody comes and and hello world and and also feeling that it was as transient as MySpace or something, going, okay, this thing, you know, it's probably got a couple of years. And the truth is, although we didn't see it happening at the time, it did have a couple of years. It probably, there was probably three years in which Twitter was fun. And then, <laughs> and then it turned into this monster. Um, and now it's just sort of waiting for something to replace it. And, and and you know that it is it is the the tragedy of all of the new gods is they will come and they will triumph and then their days are numbered. Um, television fascinates me right now because in many ways the days of TV are over. Most of most of my friends under the age of thirty do not possess a television. They they can't quite see the point. Why would you go and get this thing and hang it on your wall and take up space and sit down specially when the way that you watch things is probably lying on your bed? Um, you know, you've cleared out a nice Saturday afternoon and now you're going to, or, or maybe you're in there with your boyfriend or girlfriend, um, and you're going to be watching, and that's how they do it, And except for the ones who just shove their earphones in and do it on their phones and... Um, the rights to Anansi Boys are currently elsewhere. Um, they're with a UK, a couple of UK um, production companies, Red um, and and Endor Productions, um, who have been working on putting it together for the BBC for a few years. What will happen there? Um, remains to be seen. I, I hope they get to make it. If they don't, probably the rights will wander back here unless somebody swoops in and decides to make a movie of it first or something. Yeah? Yeah. 
said, at least in the four episodes that I've seen so far, that you just would not expect to see on TV. Like, when Bill Chris does what she does. And then also, like, what you were talking about earlier with Mr. Nancy, like, the speech that he gives is very provocative and, like you said, very, not even, more so than just Black Lives Matter, just very, like, he says a lot in those, you know, in just one scene. Yep. That I just would not expect to see. I mean, well, you see on television, but then not. With but you're not going to see in, in a drama. Um, you're also not going to, you know, the scene that actually for me was the one where I was going, well, nobody's ever going to shoot that, um, is Salim and the Genie. Um, you know, I, I remember writing that and going, well, okay, I've got these characters. Well, I guess I'm going to have to go there. And, and you know, straight, straight white boy is writing his first ever hardcore gay Muslim genie sex scene. It's like, okay, well, went there. And, uh, and then watching them, and then I got the script. And I'm like, hang on, you just, you just did that as written. I mean, it's like, it's not even changed. It's beat for beat what I wrote. And they're like, yeah. And I'm saying, well, what's this going to look like on screen? And then I saw it. And it's like, okay, they did that. They went there. Um, I, I, I think a lot of that is because um, things have changed. Um, the I the, the for, for a long time you didn't go to television for ideas. You didn't go to television for um, any ideas that might be confrontational, and you also. The the the, uh, the the general idea behind television was to be as inoffensive as possible to as many people as possible, so that as many people as possible would watch. The last thing anybody wanted was anybody turning off. Um, I, on the other hand, took it as a badge of honor after giving a... I, I, I was interviewed on the red carpet uh, about a month ago, three weeks ago, um, in the UK at the Empire Film Awards. And, and I, I said something, I mean, I was even polite, because, you know, I was talking about America and I was in England, so I wasn't, like, even rude about... I, I was just saying, you know, the nature of American gods has changed even since we filmed it. You know, we shot it in a pre-Trump world. It is showing in a post-Trump world. And the fact that we have... with with we are an immigration positive show. We are a race. We we are. We're not a colorblind show, but we are a very color aware show. We are a racially aware show. We're we're about all of that stuff. Is now suddenly huge, important, and political in a way that it wasn't even when we shot it, um, and it definitely wasn't when I wrote it. It, it was, and and I said that stuff. And the headline in the Daily Express was something like, you know, Gaiman slams Trump. And I thought, no, I didn't. If you want to hear me slam Trump, I will slam Trump. That was, that was just me. Um, and then you got these people going in, in the comments saying, well, I will be boycotting this show. And I thought, well, actually, A, you're not boycotting it. What you're actually doing is technically not watching it, which is a very, very different thing. Um, but I loved the fact that there are people so fragile out there that the idea of a show that's positive about immigration 
makes them throw the boycott word around. And I love the fact that Stars doesn't give a fuck. Amazon Prime Video don't give a fuck. Brian doesn't give a fuck. I don't give a fuck. It's like, and we're not making this show to piss people off. Although there are people who are going to see things they've never seen on screen before. We're making this show because we care about it. We believe in it. I, the joy of fantasy is that you can say true things that are lies. And as far as I'm concerned, it is a book that is filled with true things that are couched in, in fictional terms. Um, and, the, you know, when, when it works, um, you're seeing something you've never seen on screen before. You know, Emily Browning's performance as Laura in episode four. <laughs> I, it's just like, you know, I look at that and I go... Shows like American Gods do not get Emmys and things, but if she isn't nominated for some awards, there is n- the scene between her and Betty in the bathroom. It's like, yeah, you have never seen this scene before, and you can't say that for a lot of television because um, you haven't seen it before, and it's wonderful. I and it's and it's true. There is a level of emotional honesty. <laughs> to everything that is happening um, that is absolutely magical. And that, so that for me is the big important. And, and uh, also in that same episode, just to finish it with that, you have her then kicking a man in his nuts and sending his skull to his, like, skin. We do. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's funny because at the end of, we did a screening the other night at Bard for, of American Gods, and afterwards... Um, you know, one of the questions I was asked a lot was, is it all going to be that bloody? And I was like, actually, no. No, actually, I, you know, I said like 90% of the blood and the gore in the first season of American Gods is in that first episode. Um, but what it does do is let you know that we are prepared to go that far. It's the same reason that when I was writing the novel, word 15 was Fuck. Because I went, okay, anybody who's going to be offended by bad language, they can stop there. You know, you've picked up a book, you've read the first sentence, the word fuck is in it, you can put it down and go away. And for the same reason Bilquis's scene was at the end of chapter one, because it was like, if you're going to have a problem with this, <laughs> stop now. Um, that's okay. We will think no less of you. Um, you can stop here, but Bill Quiss, uh, and I, I gotta say, Yatide's performance in that is absolutely astonishing. And and have you guys met her yet? No, you, I I hope you're going to, because when you when you meet Yatide and discover that she is this, you know, geek girl gone wild. I mean, she's just in geek heaven, just being part of this. Um, and you go, and there's you, and you're Bill Quiz. How do you do that? Um, that you know, the fact that they shot that scene as written. And when I talked to Brian and Michael and I said, so how are you going to do that? They said, as written. It's like, God. <laughs> One last question, guys. Anybody who hasn't asked oh, no. a question? <laughs> Thanks for everything. Hang on. We, ha- we have a... Isn't 
what she chose to give her love and attention to throughout her life is what dictates her fate. So you've written a lot of gods and given a lot of attention to a lot of different things. What do you think you'd be faced with? I, I don't know. I, I do love the Egyptian gods. You know, in terms of gods that you kind of believe in as a kid, um, which is where everything is formed. You know, the Norse gods for me were the first ones that I encountered and fell in love with, which is why I wrote Norse mythology. But I had absolutely no interest in um, the two options, the death options that the Norse give you, which is either spending the rest of your life having fights in the morning, being killed, and then coming back to life and drinking mead and feasting all night, or going to hell's land and just sort of being quiet and doing it again but under the ground. Um, whereas the next book that I encountered as a kid was, was Roger Lanceling Green's Tales of Ancient Egypt. And I thought, yes, obviously that makes sense when you're dead. They take out your heart, they put it on the scale, they put down a feather, and you know you have two choices. Either you're going to be light against the feather, in which case you get to go somewhere cool, which hopefully will have a lot of books in it, um, or it will get eaten by Amat, the Eater of Souls, and you're doomed. Um, and I figured, and I put in American Gods, that it was a really big, heavy feather that they had made specially, because I thought that gives me a chance to go and at least go to the room full of books. All of the books that you didn't get a chance to read while you were alive, because life is finite and there's too many books out there, I figure that would be my perfect afterlife, finally catching up. Um, you know, she's an old woman. I don't think she's done anything to deserve that. <laughs> you know, you, he could at least be kind. I mean, she's going to have to... But then again, you know, she's she's ridden in carriages with Edie Amin and people over the years. I'm, I'm sure she's used to it. The Black Girl Nerds podcast is produced by Jamie Brodnax. Various episodes are edited by Jamie Brodnax, M.R. Daniel, and John Bauer. The opening theme song to our show is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals are performed by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find episodes of the Black Girl Nerds podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spreaker, and Spotify. That was a HeadGum podcast.